0: From
1: PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Perwood.
0: And I'm Jenny Doring, uncovering some accidental ecosystems in our cities.
2: We ended up getting a lot of wildlife in urban areas unintentionally. People started planting trees in cities in the 19th century, not because they were trying to attract squirrels, but because they thought it was going to be better for human health and well-being to have cities with trees to have cities with shade.
3: Also, the senses beyond our own. I feel, sitting here right now, that my perception of the world is complete. And yet I'm missing so much. I am not perceiving the ultraviolet colors that a bee or a bird might be able to see. I can't feel the um, magnetic field of the Earth in the way a sea turtle can. I can't hear ultrasonic frequencies that mice or bats can hear.
1: Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
0: From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring.
1: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Some of our favorite segments on the show are chats with authors. So for today's encore edition of Living on Earth, we wanted to share some book interviews to round out your summer reading list. We have stories of animal wonders later in the show, but first up, we have Jake Biddle with The Great Displacement climate change, and the next American migration. From extreme summertime heat to fierce hurricanes, floods, and fires, climate disruption is already making it difficult to live in parts of America. And it seems likely to uproot millions of people in the coming decades. Jake Biddle joined the Living on Earth book club to share his insights on this radical reshaping of U.S. geography.
4: I asked him how his project began. So before I wrote about climate change, I mostly wrote about housing. And I had learned about a federal government program in Houston, where the government paid people to leave their homes, and they knocked down homes that were perennially flooding. You know, they've flood 10, 12 times in as many years. And I went to Houston to write a magazine article about it, and I walked around these neighborhoods that had been completely emptied out, you know, in the middle of a relatively dense city, And I was mostly writing about the people who had hung on and, you know, not participated in the program and were staying in these empty areas. But during the course of writing that article, I sort of started to wonder, where did all the people who took the money end up? And almost nobody could tell me. FEMA couldn't tell me. Houston couldn't tell me. The neighbors couldn't tell me. Maybe there was one academic who had tried to find it out. And that was the, the seed for the book, was I used the federal database of buyouts, and then I used the white pages to find (laughs) all the people who had lived in these homes before. And I ended up with maybe 10 or 12 times as much material as I was able to use in the article. And it quickly became clear to me that it wasn't a problem that was localized to Houston. It wasn't a phenomenon that was specific to flooding. It was a sort of very unremarked upon or poorly understood movement that was going on after these disasters all over the country. And that was kind of the initial idea for the the project.
1: What did the people who stayed think? It's like more than a thousand bucks a month to pay for insurance for the place, which probably the mortgage payment itself.
4: It's much less than that. Could be less than that in many of these places. Yeah.
1: If they saw this devastation, why did they stay?
4: Yeah, it's a really, really good question. It's always a very messy topic, you know, movement decisions and migration. People don't really act always in the ways that we expect them to. It seems to be different for each person, but I think there were sort of two reasons. One was that people really have a really, really strong attachment to the place that they're from. And in a lot of cases, there just isn't another part of the country or indeed the world that is similar. And everyone they know lives there. That's where they work. You know, they had had insurance, so they were able to rebuild after a flood. And they just thought, well you know, I don't want to leave. There's not really anywhere else I can go that's as affordable as this neighborhood. The other side of it, though, is that it's really hard to find somebody to buy your house if you want to sell it. So there's a separate piece where the homes become albatrosses. What you'll see is a lot of people who are stuck. You know, they are basically have no option but to sort of plead at a political level for what in the book, you know, I think I described fairly as a bailout. It's not their fault for living there, but the only solution realistically is for the government you know, which doesn't have a stake in it, to pump money in to get people out of their homes. And the government, I think, has to act as a a backstop in the same way that the the Federal Reserve does for banks. You know, FEMA or whichever branch you prefer can act as a backstop for the housing market and just say, look, the only realistic solution is for the government to intervene because the market has just completely broken down. So yeah, you either have people who are in love or they're trapped, you know, And, and sometimes they're both. Yeah, talk to me about insurance
1: in a place like Norfolk, Virginia, say.
4: Yeah, so most people there uh, for flood insurance, they purchase a policy from a federal government program because most private companies don't offer it because it's not profitable. But those policies are getting extraordinarily expensive. I spoke to several families who are paying upwards of $13,000 a year for policies. That's more than 300 times what it was a couple years ago, and there's not really a cap on that. And I think it's interesting because what the policy, what that number is trying to communicate is that, you know, one day the home will be potentially permanently underwater. So its value is essentially nil, and the cost of protecting it is infinity. So that number, uh, which is impossible for families to pay, is sort of communicating like the financial system of homeownership can't sustain you living here. But for the people in that position, it just feels like a massive, you know, financial burden and often leads to them having to, to leave. You know, you reveal in your book that the major cause of truly regional migration
1: isn't necessarily that sudden weather event, the flood, or the hurricane, the fire, but the gradual increase in temperature.
4: Why is that? I think that it's because of the way that people experience risk, right? I think that, you know, the chances that my town is going to get hit by a hurricane Each year, they're always going to be relatively low. It's never going to be 100%, right? And you can always kind of say, okay, well, you know, maybe this flood insurance payment is too high in this home, but what if I move to higher ground, you know, just a couple miles away, right, and get a discount on my premium? But I think the idea that every summer you're going to face lethal temperatures, right? There's health impacts. It's extremely dangerous to raise children in that kind of weather. I think that is what's going to make people make the psychological decision to make an elective movement away from these areas and away from the regions as a whole, right? Because because of the way that we've built our cities and, you know, because of the way we built against rivers and mountains, there's always a place that's more resilient to flooding or fire than, you know, a place 10 miles away. But heat is a, you know, it's an atmospheric phenomenon. It's not something you can avoid just by moving a couple miles away. You have to move to a place that's more temperate. And even then, you're not totally out of danger. So I think that that's the kind of thing is, it's not really a financial burden. People won't experience it financially. It's not even necessarily, you know, like something that's going to damage their property. It's just the the feeling of, okay, as long as I live here, I'm going to have to deal with this. That's going to change a lot of people's minds, I think, especially when you look into the health impacts on older people and and very young people. And what about businesses? I mean, um,
1: business and industry is going to have to migrate.
4: Right, certainly. I mean, look at, you know, San Francisco, for instance, a lot of tech companies have said, you know, our workers don't want to come to work, they don't want to live here because they're concerned about crime, they're concerned about quality of life, and it turned into a hair-pulling moment for the industry. It's not that hard to imagine all the tech companies, for instance, that are being headquartered in Austin right now, or a lot of them have moved to Miami. It's not that hard to imagine them saying, "Uh uh-oh, you know, our workers don't want to live here because it's far too hot. You know, we have to make sure that we move our offices somewhere else so that we can attract talent. You know, it's not happening yet, but it's it's far from implausible.
1: So... The subtitle of your book includes migration, the next
4: American migration. Where are people going if they figure out they have to leave? Yeah. If you look at a map and you sort of assess on paper, what are the places with the least vulnerability to hurricanes, storm surge, sea level rise, wildfires, drought, et cetera, you end up with a list of cities, mostly in the upper Midwest, right? Cincinnati is often put forward as a potential place because it could house twice the number of people that it currently does. It has an abundant supply of fresh water. Buffalo, for all its uh, many weather issues, is often said to be like one of the most resilient places to climate change. I think that, you know, the fate of coastal cities like Boston, whether they become moving sites for people, really depends a lot on how much we spend on ensuring that they're resilient to the biggest disasters, right? So there's a version of Boston where there's a, you know, a, a giant, you know, green ring around the waterfront, and it's really, really difficult to imagine a storm big enough to flood the city. You know, that's, that's definitely possible, but it's sort of up in the air, I think. But there are places that are sort of ready-made for this, right? Duluth, Minnesota, Chicago, to a certain extent, that those may be the places where if you were making a hypothetical decision about where to put your money, you might end up there, right? But that doesn't imply that people will make such rational decisions. It's just like, the, on paper, they look they look good, right? You know? <laughs> right? I think what's important to emphasize is it doesn't necessarily need to involve people from the South picking up their things and moving North. In the short term, they mostly go, I think the shortest possible distance that they can, right? A lot of times they end up moving into another place that's just as vulnerable, or they move to the closest city where they can find cheap housing, right? So sometimes they'll move from a rural area to a nearby city, you know, anything to maintain the social ties that they already have. You're not seeing a, you know, a march north or a movement west on the scale of the dust bowl, but you are seeing people start to say, okay, well, there's certain areas, you know, often rural areas that are extremely high risk and don't have enough money to keep up with the pace of disaster. And then so the locus of investment and growth will gradually shift to the north, I think, but it can take a while. And I think the rest of the country has to look even worse than it does now. And that may not change for, you know, a few decades, right, until you start to see some some really devastating and chronic events. That's Jake Biddle,
1: author of The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration.
0: Next up for your summer reading, the accidental ecosystems that cities provide for wildlife. Keep listening to Living
5: on Earth. If you're one of Living on Earth's listener supporters, or if you've been considering a donation to LOE, this message is for you. As a nonprofit news organization, listener support is vital to LOE's weekly effort to bring you up-to-date environmental news and information. Your gift to LOE makes a difference and makes our work possible. So thank you.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
0: And I'm Jenny Doring. Gray squirrels are common in most U.S. cities, but they're relatively recent arrivals as of the mid-19th century. In fact, cities were long devoid of most wildlife we take for granted today, like pigeons, crows, and raccoons. The 2022 book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities, explores how all that changed. Historian Peter Aligona teaches at UC Santa Barbara. Welcome to Living on Earth, Peter.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jenny.
0: So cities without squirrels, really? <laughs> I mean, come <laughs> on. Take us back to the time when wildlife were absent from our cities. Why were they like that?
2: You know, it's such a funny question because when I was writing this book, And telling that story, I didn't anticipate that that would be one of the stories that would jump out to people and trigger their curiosity and um, cause a lot more questions to be asked. But in the months since the book's come out, I've got a lot of questions about squirrels because these are such a common, well-known feature of urban landscapes throughout the United States and, in fact, throughout much of the world. But it wasn't always that way. Eastern gray squirrels were native to the eastern portion of North America in forested habitats in places like New England and into the Midwest and, and portions of the southeast. But over the course of a century or so, following European colonization, they were hunted for their fur and for food. They were eradicated as pests, and their habitats were felled. The forests that they, they lived in were felled in many areas. And so by the 18th century, eastern gray squirrels were missing from a lot of their former range, including in cities like New York and Philadelphia, where we know them, you know, so well today. And so it wasn't until really the middle part of the 19th century that they started to come back. And that was really for two reasons. One was that people started to bring them back. People had actually been keeping them as pets, as kind of exotic pets in a way, during those years when they were so rare in those in that part of the country. But also, in addition to people bringing them back and reintroducing them, new habitats were created for them. Cities started to plant more trees along streets. They started to construct new parks like Central Park in the mid-19th century and plant trees in those places that would then provide urban habitats for this species that had lived in these regions but then was largely lost. And so this is just one example, but a really good one, of the ways in which our modern cities have attracted so much wildlife, including species that have returned, and in some cases, new species that were never really there before.
0: So what kinds of animals do well in urban spaces?
2: There's a a way of thinking about this that's developed over about the past 20 years. We can divide animals with regard to their success or inability to live in urban areas into three categories. Now, keep in mind that this is much more nuanced and it changes over time, but it's at least a way to start. So one group of animals that we might all recognize uh, in relation to urban areas are the urban exploiters. Now, these are creatures that do really well in cities, and as a result, tend to occur in large numbers and in many urban areas throughout the world. And so we can all think of examples of that. These are the pigeons, the crows, the rats that you see in urban areas, whether you're in North America or South America, Asia, Europe, wherever you happen to be. Then there's a group of animals that tend to be referred to as the urban adapters. Those are creatures that can do well in and around cities, but tend to require some... Wildland area nearby, or at least some green space in which they can seek refuge, perhaps during the day when there are a lot of people out kind of going about their business. And so this includes animals like raccoons or coyotes or foxes, some raptors or owls or large wading birds like the blue herons. And then there's a group of animals that we call the urban avoiders, which are the ones that do really poorly in cities for any number of different reasons and are rarely seen there. Sometimes these are large-bodied animals that travel long distances to forage or find mates. Or they can be creatures that are just kind of hard for people to live with in areas where there are a lot of people living in the same place. And so this includes animals like pumas, for example. I think one of the things to recognize about this is that if you look at the exploiters, the creatures that do really well in urban areas, they tend to share a set of characteristics or qualities. And
0: what are those characteristics?
2: They tend to be social, so they are relatively comfortable around large groups of their own kind, large numbers of their own species. They tend to have cultures where they learn things and experiment and then pass on their knowledge to their young. They tend to be relatively flexible, so they can live in a lot of different kinds of habitats. They tend to have relatively large brains, maybe in relation to other animals that are closely related to them. That's an area of ongoing research. And crucially, they tend to be omnivores, which means that they can harvest a wide variety of resources as food that they might find in urban areas. But you know what the funny thing is, Jenny? If you think about putting all of these qualities together, social, cultural, omnivores, relatively large brains, that sounds to me a lot like people. (laughs) And so one of the things that we can notice about urban exploiters, creatures that tend to do really well in urban environments, is that they have some qualities that are something like the qualities that we have.
0: Wow. That's fascinating. I would never have thought of that before.
2: But, you know, if you think about exploiters, one of the most common exploiters, of course, are rats. And rats are also used as model organisms for biomedical research. There are reasons for that, so that they're easy to breed, they're easy to keep. There's relatively little controversy around using them for experimentation, but also because they're enough like people that we can learn something from studying them. And I know that the listeners in your audience don't necessarily want to hear that they're like rats, but we do have things in common (laughs) with creatures with which we share our habitats.
0: Yeah, we're not really that different from these other critters (laughs) that we live among. So Peter of Of course, it isn't always easy living with wild animals nearby. How much of a real threat do predators like bears, pumas, and coyotes pose to urbanites, and what are some examples of ways to prevent this wildlife-human conflict?
2: I think that our views of the risks that are out there and the conflicts that occur are very much conditioned by the media. Unfortunately, when we get our information from the media, we get a lot of different kinds of signals, and oftentimes conflicts are what's emphasized over coexistence so if there's a particular incident that happens with a coyote for example or with a fox or a raccoon we hear about it we don't hear about all the days and all the times that nothing happens at all and we go about living together in our communities and so as a result the concerns over living with urban predators are often believed to be much greater than they are. In general, these animals are very predictable. They tend to not be aggressive toward people and they tend to live among us sometimes for a long time without us even really knowing it. You know, there are some other potential issues that that can arise. Sometimes people get gophers in their garden or, or other sorts of things. And the best thing to do in that case is to oftentimes to not focus quite so much on eradicating the animal which is oftentimes the approach of of pest control, but really thinking about the kind of habitat you're creating in and around your apartment, in and around your home, and whether or not the habitat you're creating is drawing in the kinds of animals that you want to live in close contact with. If there are ways to modify the habitat a little bit to discourage some of the creatures you want to see less of and encourage some of the ones you want to see more of, the plants we put outside our homes, the gardens we construct, the ways that we move through our neighborhoods, whether we speed down our streets and our neighborhoods, all of these things are subtly altering the urban habitat in ways that inventive, in some cases ingenious, urban animals are able to take advantage of. The reason I call this book The Accidental Ecosystem is that part of my argument is that we ended up getting a lot of wildlife in urban areas unintentionally, as a result of decisions that people often made decades ago and for other reasons. People started planting trees in cities in the 19th century, not because they were trying to attract squirrels, but because they thought it was going to be better for human health and well-being to have cities with trees, to have cities with shade.
0: Which is also
2: true. Which is also true. And so it seems to me that if we want to move forward and think about moving from an accidental ecosystem to a more intentional urban ecosystem where we're really thinking through the kinds of creatures we want to surround ourselves with, the kinds of habitats we want to create, the kinds of ways that we can foster thriving and coexistence, not just for wildlife, but also for people. Then maybe it pays to think about these places as multi-species communities, to think about being more intentional in the ways that we construct urban habitats, thinking forward about the kinds of creatures that are going to be around us as a result of that, and then also thinking about how that relates to human health and well-being. If we do that, how will that help us to craft better cities, better urban areas in the future?
0: Yeah. Speaking of that, how do you envision wildlife in the cities of the future? What might that look like in the U.S. in 100 years' time?
2: I don't know what that's going to look like, but here's what I will say. Just this move from this idea that cities are for people, And when wild creatures show up there, it's either something that's bizarre or something that's funny or a spectacle, or it's a problem that needs to be dealt with through pest control, through eradication. Moving from that view to the view that cities are habitats, they're shared habitats, and they're multi-species communities, that alone is a move that then shifts how we think about everything we do in those spaces. So For example, if we're thinking about transportation and we want to build a transportation system for the future, well, that has to accommodate growing population. It has to accommodate changing needs, the changing distribution of people on the landscape. It's definitely going to need to accommodate changing technologies as we move, for example, to driverless cars and things like this. But also, how can it better accommodate wild creatures? We know that roads are the source both of isolating populations of wildlife, animals that can't cross roads to travel to other patches of habitat. We also know that roads are sites where a lot of animals die through roadkill. How can we reduce that? Well, we know, for example, that roadkill does not happen randomly. It tends to happen in particular areas where wildlife, wild creatures are crossing from one patch of habitat to another. And so if we just think about that, then suddenly we can say, well, wait a minute. Maybe those are areas where we should increase lighting, where we should reduce speed, where we should provide signs, where we should maybe do law enforcement as well, education. Because when people have auto collisions with wild animals, it's a danger to them as well as the creatures. It's also a threat to to private property. And so focusing on those sorts of questions, I think in a more focused and enduring way over time, I think will enable us to rethink cities in ways that uh, helps people live with creatures, that reduces the risks of living with them, and that enables us to live side by side in cities that will inevitably look very different 100 years from now than they do today.
0: Yeah. Before you go, Peter, are there any species that you're really happy to have around in your city?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to have every creature that I run into. Every wild creature is a source of fascination to me. But if I had to name one, I would say this. Um, a few years ago, I was living in a home just about a mile and a half from, from where I'm living now. And one year we had a pair of great horned owls that nested in a Canary Island date palm tree, an exotic tree um, right across the street. They laid three eggs, gave birth to three chicks. Two of them survived and fledged. And over the course of this several-month process, we had these two amazing great horn owls living across the street from us, flying around our neighborhood from tree to tree, hooting mm-hmm. in the evenings, hunting, hunting. We found lots of parts of animals, <laughs> rats and, and other animals, maybe creatures that we didn't want to see around as much as, as the owls. Yeah. And so the owls were performing this incredible service for us. We got to see the chicks fledge and fly away. And not only that, but through this process, I got to meet neighbors, community members who I'd never had an opportunity to meet before because we were all out there in the evenings watching these owls and paying attention to them and following them and their chicks. And it was just a wonderful community experience. And so I look back on that as a very formative moment when I realized that, you know, coexistence with wildlife is not just about people and other animals. It's about people and people. And there are cases in which living with wildlife can bring us closer to our human neighbors as well.
0: Peter Alagona is a professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of The Accidental Ecosystem. People and Wildlife in American Cities. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Jenny. Another place where life finds a way is about as far from a vibrant city as you can get. Deep in the ocean, hagfish, zombie worms, and octopuses thrive at the sites where dead whales have come to rest. And when children's author Melissa Stewart heard about it, she decided to write a book called Whale Fall, Exploring an Ocean Floor Ecosystem. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to Living on Earth. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So a whale fall starts with a death, but then it goes on to nourish a whole ecosystem of deep sea life. Can you tell us about sort of the process that happens over 50 years?
6: Yeah, so a whale, like let's say a gray whale, can live for 70 years, but then when it falls to the ocean floor, it can fuel this community for another 50 or so years. And there are distinct phases of the decomposition process of the whale. So it will start out by attracting sleeper sharks and also hagfish. They can smell the whale from miles around as it's laying there in the very early stages of the decomposition, And so they will do some of the initial feeding. And so you go through phases of different communities of creatures. And so there are crabs that come in. There are different kinds of fish that come in. And then there are also creatures that feed on the animals that are feeding on the whale fall. So, for example, there can be just billions of little creatures called amphipods, which are sort of like shrimp. But then there are octopuses that come in and feed on those amphipods, for example. But then as there gets to be less and less blubber, less and less meat that are actually on the bones, then there are animals that come in and actually start to feed on the bones themselves. And so initially, animals like zombie worms, they release a substance that kind of will ooze into the bones. And they can get in and get nourishment out the bones, but they can only reach so far. And then there are even more creatures that will come in. So eventually we get down to a stage where there's bacteria and it will become a chemosynthetic ecosystem. And these deep sea microbes that are feeding on the whale fall will actually be housed inside of other creatures like clams and tube worms that provide a home for these creatures, but also they are feeding on those little microbes
0: themselves. So at first glance, this seems like kind of a morbid topic for a children's book. How did you come to choose a whale fall as the topic for your latest children's book?
6: The story behind this book traces back to an earlier book that I wrote, which is called Ick, Delightfully Disgusting Animal Dinners, Dwellings, and Defenses. And when I was researching that book, I was looking for animals that lived in really interesting environments that were somehow gross, unusual, or disgusting. And so I came across zombie worms, which are also known as bone-eating snot flower worms. So right there, you kind of have to just fall in love with that name, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I was so interested in the way that they live. They have such an unusual lifestyle. And one of the most interesting things about them is that the females are about one or two inches tall. They live on the bones of the whales as they're decaying. But the males are microscopic and they live inside the female bodies. Wow. I've never even
0: heard of creatures that live like that.
6: Pretty amazing. And so as I was researching that book and gathering all the information, I knew that I could only write about 400 words on zombie worms. And I had a lot more to say, not only about them, but also about this incredible environment that they live in. That was my access point into whale falls and all the different creatures that live there. Thousands of different species can live at a whale fall during its 50 year life while the whale is decaying and they have some of the most incredible names that you can imagine things like rough scale rat tail and blob sculpin and one of my favorites is sea pigs which is a little sea cucumber but it it looks a lot like a pig it's bright pink and it has little feet like a pig they're just they're delightful little creatures And I really wanted to write a book that focused on that ecosystem.
0: Well, what inspired you to become a children's author and share stories about the environment with kids?
6: I think it really traces back to my family, to my parents, the way I was raised. When we were young, both my brother and I used to go out exploring and on walks, there was a national forest across the street from our house. So we had a lot of free reign to explore and discover. But when we went on these walks with my dad, he would always be asking us questions to help nurture our curiosity about the natural world and what we were seeing around us. And I can remember one day he took us to an area of the woods that we had never been to before. And he said, Do you notice anything strange about the trees in this area? I noticed. That all the trees seem kind of small, and he said, Great observation. The reason for that is because about 25 years ago, there was a fire in this forest, and all the trees burned down. Many of the creatures had to run away and live in other parts of the wood. But over time, things have started to grow back, and animals have returned. And that was a really powerful moment to me because I was about eight years old and it taught me two things. First of all, that the natural world is so powerful that it can rejuvenate itself, that it can endure all kinds of calamities and rebound. But number two, it taught me that if you look around, you can read the history of a natural area through your observations. And that really hooked me. That was what made me want to become a scientist and kind of launched me on a journey to discover as much as I can about the natural world and share it with other people.
0: Melissa Stewart is the author of Whalefall, as well as over 200 other science books for children. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
1: Coming up, from bees that see an ultraviolet to a dog's powerful nose, extraordinary animal senses are just ahead on Living on Earth.
6: Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.
5: Here at Living on Earth, we work hard each and every week to bring you the most relevant and compelling environmental news. As a nonprofit organization, we count on you to help. Listener support is key to sustaining the environmental news gathering and reporting that you rely on. Please consider doing your part to support Living on Earth. A monthly donation is the very best way to ensure LOE's work continues week after week. To make your pledge of support, go to loe.org and click donate. And thank you for helping to keep LOE's nonprofit environmental media going strong.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring.
1: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Every animal species experiences the world in its unique way. Mantis shrimp, for example, have many more photoreceptors than humans and can filter polarized light. And the star-nosed mole can smell underwater. Since we have none of these abilities, it can be hard to relate to other species. But shifting our understanding can help us respect our fellow creatures and make better decisions when it comes to the world we share. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ed Yong set out to explore the world the way animals do in his 2022 book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Let's listen now to my chat with Ed Yong at our Living on Earth Book Club event. Now, you've been writing about sensory biology for, what, a decade or more? But I think it was, what, 2018 that you decided to do this compendium of what you call Umwelten, this German word. So explain for us, by the way, what's an Umwelt?
3: So the word Umwelt is German for environment. um, But in this context, we're not talking about the physical environment. It is the sensory environment. It is specifically the sights and sounds and textures and smells that exist in the world that I can perceive and that might well be unique to me as an individual or certainly as a species. The core thesis of this book is that every creature has its own particular set of sensory information that it can pick up. It is only perceiving a thin sliver of the fullness of reality. And that, I think, is a wonderfully humbling and expansive idea. Um, It is humbling because I feel, sitting here right now, that my perception of the world is complete. I, I'm certainly not you know, grasping for things that I feel like I'm missing, and yet I'm missing so much. I am not perceiving the ultraviolet colours that a bee or a bird might be able to see. I can't feel the um, magnetic field of the Earth in the way a sea turtle can. I can't hear ultrasonic frequencies that mice or bats can hear. There is much around me that I'm completely oblivious to, even if it doesn't feel that way. But that is also, I think, a a beautifully expansive idea. It means that even in the most familiar of settings, there is wonder and magic to be found. By thinking about how my dog sniffs his way around the neighbourhoods that I walk down thousands of times every year, I see those environments in new ways. Thinking about you know, what a seabird, perce- like an albatross, perceives as it flies over a featureless ocean. The ocean doesn't become so featureless anymore. That's why the book is subtitled in the way it is. It's not just about thinking about animals in a new light, it's about what animals can teach us about thinking about our world in a new and more profound way. You also give us a taste of how it matters
1: to them, the whole notion of consciousness for these creatures. I don't want to anthropomorphize this, but I have to wonder, am I torturing my dog when I don't let her stop and sniff when I go walking at my local dog-friendly forest?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I so I write in that chapter that smell is, is a primary sense for dogs. It is their main gateway to the world around them. And I think humans forget this sometimes. And and as you say, like a lot of dog owners will yank their dogs along on a walk on the assumption that the point of the walk is exercise. And that is certainly one of the points, but I think it's also really important to let dogs be dogs. I had the good fortune of writing that segment of the book before I got my pandemic puppy. So he's a corgi. uh, He's two years old. His name is Typo, um, good writer name. And um, (laughs) when he sniffs a patch of sidewalk that another dog has peed upon, that is very similar to me checking my Instagram, my Twitter feed. You know, it is a social activity. It, It tells him about what other dogs that he knows about in the neighbourhood have been up to, possibly their health, what they've eaten recently. And if I was to deprive him of that, I think I would be severing him from a really important part of his his doghood. You know, it, it would be like if I went on a hike with a friend and every time I tried to look at a beautiful vista or sunset, my friend covered my eyes and, and pulled me along. So this is, I think, one of the the themes of the book. Like by by not thinking about the umbelton of other animals, we can do them harm. Like we we can misinterpret their needs, their behaviors, their actions, sometimes in, in detrimental ways. And conversely, by thinking about their senses, you know, we can afford to them a better quality of life more respect, and you know, we can feel uh, a more profound connection to them.
1: Indeed. So thank you for that. And there's another jewel of understanding in, in your book, which is around the perception of ultraviolet light. Just explain how this perception of UV works and why there's a difference.
3: So colour vision works very differently in in other species. So humans have trichromatic vision. That means we have three kinds of colour-sensing cells in our eyes that combine to create the million or so colours that we can see. A dog has just two rather than three, and so their colour vision is more limited. Now, there's this common myth that dogs can't see colour at all, that is wrong, but their uh, rainbow is really limited to blues and yellows. They don't get the reds, they don't get the violets, they don't really get the greens in the middle. However, a lot of animals, including most birds, many insects, uh, some fish, are tetrachromatic. They have four kinds of colour-sensing cells, which means that they have access to an entire dimension of colours that we can't see. That might include ultraviolet, a colour at the far end of the rainbow, just literally beyond violet. That's what ultraviolet means. But it also includes ultraviolet in combination with the other colours that we do see, creating this huge cocktail of hues that we are completely oblivious to. And if you have this kind of vision, then a lot of the world looks very different. So a lot of birds, where um, males and females look identical to our eyes, the sexes actually look very different to the birds themselves because they have the ability to see all of these extra colours that we can't. Flowers can look very different. A lot of flowers have vivid ultraviolet markings on them that guide insects to sources of nectar. So a sunflower, if I ask you what colour a sunflower is, you'd probably say yellow. But to a bee, a sunflower has a vivid ultraviolet bullseye at its centre. There are many, many examples of this, and I think it tells us that in much of the world, actually we are getting a very, very specific view of even things that we consider to be brightly and vividly colored. And that is not what other animals might see.
1: Yeah, our construct. And uh, hey, somebody that you met while researching this book and was featured in the same chapters you have uh, on dolphins and bats is Daniel Kish. Mm -hmm. Please take a moment to tell us his story and why it's important that more people should hear this story.
3: So Daniel is blind and has been blind from close to birth, and he gets around using a long cane, uh, as many blind people do, but he also echolocates, so he does the thing that bats and dolphins do. He makes loud, sharp noises, in Daniel's case, with his tongue. He makes these incredibly loud, precise clicks with his tongue, and he perceives the world in the rebounding echoes. And his skill at doing this is really extraordinary. Um, You know, I've gone for walks with Daniel um, in his neighbourhood, and sure, he's using the cane, and that helps him a lot. But he also has just a very deep awareness of his surroundings. Like, he'll be able to duck a tree branch lying across his path. He'll be able to tell me, as we're walking along the street, where cars are, like where houses are, where lawn converts to gravel, converts to concrete, back to lawn. He has this incredible awareness of his surroundings because of echoes. And he's not as skilled as a bat. He likes to point out that they've had millions of years of head start in him. But he's very good at this. He developed this ability on his own and is now teaching other people to to do it. And I think that has a couple of lessons for us. Firstly, the scientific paper in 1944 that first coined the word echolocation used it in the context of bats, And people. So it's been well known for a long time that a lot of blind people can do this. And yet, even today, a lot of researchers who study echolocation aren't aware that human echolocation is a thing. And I think that's in part because of ableism and because we underestimate the abilities of people who don't have a typical sensorium. And I think it also shows that even within a species, in this case, humans, The Umwelt can be very, very different. You know, it's often said um, when writing about the senses that humans are a visual species. It seems to, you know, disregard the millions of people who get by very well without any sight at all. And the other thing that I think that Daniel's story really tells us that's very important is that when thinking about the senses of another animal or another individual, there's always going to be a gap that we cannot cross I can tell you about what scientific research says about their experience of the world, but I can't really tell you what it's like to be a dog or be a whale. Now, you might think that in the case of Daniel, it would be easy because he's another person, we speak the same language, he has words with which to describe his experience, which an elephant or a dog does not have. And yet, I still don't really know what it's like to experience the world in the way that Daniel does. And I think it's important to recognise that this is a task that we'll never really be able to accomplish. The glory is in the attempt to do so, the effortful work of trying to extend our curiosity and our empathy into the lives of other people and other creatures. And I think that's one of the things I really hope to instill in readers of this book that rather than walk past an animal, um, you know, rather than trying to shoo it away from our homes or, or any of those kinds of reactions, I, I would hope that it makes people stop and watch and think about the other creatures that we share this planet with.
1: You know, I did find it interesting that some of the pictures that you have and. In- in your book, great color photos. There mm-hmm. must be, what, 50 or something. Mm-hmm. One of them included the face of a rattlesnake. You know, and for the first time, I saw this really artfully done photograph of a, of a rattlesnake's face, not about to strike, not with the mouth open, which is sort of typically what you might see, but just head on. And it made me think, so I, I think you've accomplished something there. Uh, now, humans us folk, we are really disrupting this planet and the the creatures living on it in so many ways. I mean, how our human activities are having such negative impacts on wildlife, you know, despite our supposedly uh, superior sight, I'm thinking of both noise and light, for example.
3: Yeah. um, So the final chapter of the book talks about this issue of sensory pollution. So that's where we have flooded the world with too much information, too much light in the dark, too much noise in the quiet. And we don't necessarily think of light and noise as pollutants in the same way that we might think of plastics or environmental toxins, but they very much are when they exist in places where they don't belong or at times when they don't belong. They can seriously harm the animals around us. They can waylay migrating birds from their paths. They can um, pull patchling sea turtles up a beach rather than towards the ocean where they belong. They can distract pollinating insects from the flowers that they ought to be servicing. These are significant problems, and I think these are important problems to grapple with, in part because they are solvable ones. A lot of the you know, ecological sins that we have hoisted upon the planet are very hard to undo. You know, if all greenhouse gas emissions were to cease tomorrow, a lot of the uh, future climate change would be baked in. If we ceased all plastic pollution tomorrow, the plastics that we have already produced would be con- would continue to despoil the oceans for decades or centuries to come. But if we switched off a lot of stuff much light and noise pollution would stop immediately. That's a very rare opportunity for an ecological win and one that I think we should take up. You know, a lot of the ways in which we can reduce light and noise pollution, switching off lights and noise, reducing the speed of things like ships or cars, are eminently doable. They just require political will to, to achieve.
1: And understanding.
3: So, um... I think one of the big things
1: is that this book really is fun for anyone who wants to learn something new about something under our noses. And uh, and, come on, how much fun was this for you? I mean, you were hanging out (laughs) with scientists in their labs. You were clipping microphones to leaves to eavesdrop on insects. You know, of course, there's stuff about
3: getting punched by a mantis shrimp. I mean, wow. How much fun did you have? I had an absolute blast. Um, I did about half of the writing and the research before the pandemic began, and then finished the second half uh, in the middle of my COVID reporting. And, you know, it was like mainlining joy and wonder at a time when I think um, I certainly, and I think all of us, could use a lot more of it. And one of the things I love the most about this topic, the the ways in which animals sense and experience the world, is that it is so scientifically and philosophically rich. There are truly wonders everywhere you look. And sensory biologists tend to often work with, you know, weird creatures that other scientists ignore. And so this book is full of common animals and familiar ones, yes, like elephants, whales, dogs, but also strange ones like mantis shrimps and star-nosed moles and naked mole rats. And um, it's almost like the entirety of the animal kingdom is here. And, and all of it has, you know, rich detail and stories to, to tell.
1: That's Ed Young talking about his book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Josh Kroom, Swayam Gagneja, Madison Goldberg, Mark Couch, Mark Lender, Don Lyman, Sarah Mahaney, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelidis, Claire Shanahan, Jake Rigo, Elle Wilson, and Yolanda Omari.
0: Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Leerstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. And you can also write to us at comments at aloe.org. I'm Jenny Doring,
1: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
6: Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.